We're continuing the series of why we believe, and today is why we believe in eternal security. Why, once someone gets saved, that they will maintain their salvation. Um, I would like to say, though, this is a little bit different than some of the past issues that we've covered. And that while, you know, at Crosspoint, we do take a very strong stand on believing that once someone's saved, that they are always saved. Where it is a little bit different is we're not talking about why Jesus is the Messiah or, or how we know that the Bible truly is the Word of God. There are people, there are Christians who don't take this position. So this isn't necessarily something we would consider to be like a fundamental of the faith and that you have to believe this in order to be a genuine believer. Though I do think it is important to understand why we believe what we believe because it will impact a lot of other areas of our lives and even our theology. So I want to cover some of those challenging verses. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So some people look at this passage and be like, well, see, this was written to Christians and... Uh, you know, it says, be not deceived. If, you, if, you're, if you're part of this list, it means you've lost your salvation. And I'm not going to go over all the troubled passages because, well, we'd have to cover quite a bit. But uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance seeing they have crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame for the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and it is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned, but beloved we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak." And like, hey, look, if there's going to be a passage in the entire Bible that someone's going to use to argue against this idea of eternal security, it's going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. It's probably one of the strongest passages, and I want to do a couple things. I want to give you a framework of interpretation to understand how to interpret these passages, but I also want to show you from the Bible that there are clear promises and clear statements given, and some things that just logically follow that indicate our salvation has to be secure. And I want to do this because if you're honest, I mean, I've done this before too. We'll see these two different positions. Some people are like, oh, well, you can lose your salvation or we can hold our salvation. And we'll take the position. And I do that. Yes, we can keep our salvation. But then if we read certain passages of scripture that make us uncomfortable, we just want to skip over it. You don't have to do that. There is a way to understand these passages that is biblical. And I believe the incorrect interpretation of the text that still indicates that we have eternal security. And those two things we have to understand, though, are one, what does the grace of God produce, and what is apostasy? So what does the grace of God produce in our lives? Well, Titus 2.12 teaches us that the grace of God, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. We have liberty in Jesus Christ, but that liberty does not mean we live however we want. That liberty that we have in Jesus Christ was liberty that we received after we were delivered from the bondage of sin so that we could live 
for Jesus Christ. And one of the main arguments you're going to hear about people like me who believe in eternal security is, well, if you don't believe someone can lose their salvation, then you're just going to live however you want to. You've got your ticket punched. You're on your way to heaven. And what you do right now is really inconsequential. And so they say that we would live without law. Well, I want to explain to you a little bit about what that biblical law is. Sometimes I hear the word antinomianism, which means without law. When you go to the Old Testament, and the Mosaic law is handed down, there's actually a few different aspects of it. One is the ceremonial laws. You've got the sacrifices, you've got the festivals and the feasts that were taking place. And we know, according to Colossians chapter 2 and Hebrews 9 and 10 and beyond, that those were a shadow of things to come that they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we see that the ceremonial law is gone. Now, we also had what is called a theocracy, and that was God's governing law over a specific nation. This is how you were to rule the people. These were going to be the laws of the land. We even see that as a church today that we aren't bound to enforce those laws and other people as well, too. Uh, case in point, when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, there's actually a case of something that appears to be incest that is taking place. Now, under Old Testament law, someone like that would have been stoned. We see under or within the, the realm of the church, that wasn't the case. They just said, okay, this person should be moved away from you guys. Hey, whoever is committing this sin, like one, you should be ashamed of what's going on, but remove them from the congregation. So we see they weren't required to enforce the theocracy. But there is a portion of the law that we do see some of it in the Mosaic Covenant, but I also want to let you know that it existed before that is God's moral law, such as you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't murder. <laughs> Things that apply for us even to today. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 that we have the law of God written in our hearts. And that's not just talking to specifically about Christians. It's talking about everybody because we were created in the image of God. So we have an idea of what God wants. Jesus says in Mark 12, 29, and Jesus answered them, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these things. Paul also says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's talking about how he's trying to reach these different people groups and how he's willing to sacrifice some of his personal liberties and freedoms that he has. And he makes the comment that for those who are without the law, he lives like someone without the law, but he's still under the law of Christ. Namely this. If you love Jesus Christ, if you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill what the law requires. And it is why am I going over all this? It's important to understand, because when we talk about what salvation is, sometimes you'll hear the terms of the Old Testament and New Testament, and what is the New Covenant? Well, the New Covenant says that God would take out a heart of stone, a heart that was resistant against God and resistance against his law, and he would give people a heart of flesh. So God is not removing his moral law, as Pastor Joel covered pretty well last week. Genuine saving faith gives us a new heart that has a proclivity to want to serve God. 
We don't want to live lawlessly. We see examples of this in the Bible. Galatians chapter number 1, verse 13 says, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 16, just an overview. He says, you'd heard how I'd been a blasphemer. He called himself the chiefest of sinners and how the grace of God worked in his life and how he used to persecute the church, doesn't do it anymore, doesn't want to destroy the church. And God used his life as an example to those who would believe after. We even see uh, the example of others who were saved in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, not just Paul. It says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God for our, and I love this next part, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything, for they themselves show us what manner of entering we had, in, or we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, I was joking about this in my connection group, but imagine if this was written a little bit differently. Imagine Paul was writing to the believers and he was saying, hey, you heard about how I used to persecute the church and I was trying to destroy it. I was very zealous in my former religion and I had an experience with Jesus Christ and my life changed and I'm still killing Christians. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Imagine we're reading the story or this letter that was given to the Thessalonians and Paul said, hey, when I came to you, I didn't come to you in word only. I came to you in power. The Holy Spirit of God was evident in your life, and your life was an example to all of those around you, and you'd show them what it was like to really be a Christian and how you can continue to worship demons and false gods and the true God. That wouldn't make any sense. And that's not what is said. We have an example found in Scripture that those who turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, that's a living faith. There is a change of life. So what is apostasy, though? Well, 1 John 2 makes this pretty clear for us. It says, Little children, it is the last time, as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. And even now, there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. Apostasy means to fall away. There was people who would have an appearance of being a Christian, but then they would fall away. They would leave the faith. We've been hearing a lot more about this with people who were uh, proclaimed Christian authors. I would use air quotes here. And then people who were songwriters. I think there was a big one that happened recently as well, too. Someone, well, I used to be saved, and yes, I was a Christian, but I left the faith, and so now I am an atheist. Well, there's two major positions that are taken here. Uh, the one I hold to is that someone who makes that decision was never saved to begin with. Now, there is another position that someone will take, and uh, a lot of people do hold to, and that is, well, these people were under the grace of God, their life was changed, and they were saved, but then they chose to turn away from God, and so they're therefore no longer under grace, and they have lost 
their salvation. And so they wouldn't necessarily isolate it to any particular sin, but they would say once someone has completely turned their back against God, they deny the faith they said they once believed, that they are no longer Christians. But if we have an understanding of what true saving faith produces and what apostasy is, it's going to make understanding these passages, and I don't like calling them trouble passages, but sometimes you might call them warning passages, what they actually mean. So I want to cover those two passages that we read with a better understanding of what does true saving faith produce. It produces a living faith, a, a faith that has fruit. Not perfect. It doesn't mean that we'll no longer sin, but it does mean that we'll have a life that shows that the Holy Spirit of God is working through a life. And what is apostasy? Apostasy being someone who is, as we can read clearly in 1 John, someone who, yes, was a part of the church in the sense they were with the assembly, but they weren't part of the church of Christ. They didn't really belong to him. So 1 Corinthians 6, going back to that, says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. People will take you to this passage and see. They'll say, hey, this was written to people in the church, and he's saying, don't be deceived. These are people, they would say that these people were Christians, and if, if they commit some of the, the sins that are on this list, that means they're going to lose their salvation. And I will say this, that again, it is possible for Christians to sin. It is even possible for Christians who are genuinely saved to commit some of these sins. But, and I encourage you to do this even today, read the entire book of 1 John. It's not very long. It talks about what a genuine Christian is and what the grace of God produces in someone's life. It's not that these are people who are Christians who would lose their salvation. It is saying that if you claim to be a Christian, and this list is what marks the fruit of your life, this is what defines you. There is no struggle. There's no repentance. There's no signs of the grace of God working in your life. It's not that you lost your salvation. It's just that you were never saved. Because the grace of God, when someone trusts Christ, and again, it's not that we can't commit some of these sins, but when we become, you might say, serial sinners, where I'm constantly living in alcoholism, I'm constantly living as an adulterer or fornicator, I'm constantly a blasphemer. If this is what marks my life, after I've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, this is not what the grace of God produces. So we'll cover Hebrews chapter 6 in a little bit more detail because, well, there's a lot to unload on this one. It says, uh, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh to the, or in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and it is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. I'm going to get to the first half of the verse, but at first I want to start with verse number seven going down. It talks about the rain coming upon the earth and an expected fruit that should be produced. And so when God rains upon the earth and he gives 
he puts the grace in someone's life, if someone makes that profession of faith, and God is, of course, expecting fruit, fruit that is something that would accompany biblical, genuine salvation. And this reminds me of a couple of the parables that Jesus himself spoke when he talks about in John 15, the branches that bear fruit and the branches that don't bear fruit. And the strong application of that passage is there might be those who claim to be Christians who are claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but if their life bears no fruit, God says that branch is worthless for nothing except to be taken up and to, to be thrown into the fire. Does it mean they lost their salvation? No, it means if they were saved, they, life would have had some kind of fruit, some kind of evidence, but it wasn't there. It would indicate that they weren't truly saved. It makes me think about the parable of the sower, how Jesus talks about God casting the seed out upon the ground and for some of it, it was, well, dry ground, and the seed never penetrates. For others, it was stony ground, where it grows a little bit, but it doesn't bear fruit. And we see that a lot in churches today. People who make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and I understand that the sanctification process in him, making us into the image of Christ, is a lifelong process, but sometimes in some people's lives, it's like the process never starts. That's an indication that their salvation never started either. The seed has been sown, it's been cast, and they might even be excited about the prayer that they just said. Then they, they're really dependent upon the sinner's prayer, but their life isn't changed, and they come to church for two or three weeks, but then they just, they fall away. You'll never see them again. They don't care about the things of God. There's no new heart. There's no new desires. The truth is, is they were never saved. And this isn't something that's just new to the New Testament. This is something that happens in the Old Testament too, and this will explain the first half of that passage that I just read. Is There's always been people among God's people who weren't part of God's people. They weren't genuine followers of God. So when we read Romans chapter 9, it talks about how all those who were Israel were not necessarily Israel. The point he's getting across is, there was a lot of Jews that traveled out of that traveled through the Exodus when God delivered them from Egypt to the promised land, but not all of them were actually genuinely following God. Only some of them were true believers. God even makes this distinction. You can read it in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. He already talks God already talks about even in the Old Testament that there's the circumcision of the flesh and there's the circumcision of the heart. God had the heart of some of the people. He didn't have the heart of all the people. But let's take this a little bit further. Were there times of prosperity within Israel? Yeah, there was. God protected them. God provided for them. There were times of great prosperity in Israel. But did that mean that every Jew in Israel was a true follower of God? No. In fact, we know that's not the case. But did they benefit from the blessings of being part of that nation? They sure did. And in the church today, as we see in 1 John, there can be those who are among us, who aren't actually of us. Jesus himself talks about the tares among the wheat and the sheep and the goats and how there will be people within the church who might look like Christians, but they aren't actually Christians. They might have even had a profession of faith, like, hey, I said a, a prayer when I was five years old, but I don't really have the fruit in my life to verify God was actually working in my life. 
and that the salvation was genuine. And these people will then fall away. But there are some people who stick around for quite a long time. And they actually enjoy the blessings of what the Spirit of God is doing in the life of others. You might be married, someone who's not a believer might be married to a believer, and they see their marriage is better. And they can see, well, okay, well, this would be a good example of someone who is not a Christian, but benefited by being within the Christian community. They've seen the supernatural works of God. They've even benefited from it. But there's a big difference here. While they might be among us, they have never personally put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because when Paul is writing letters, he is often writing to mixed groups of people. And these are warning passages. So what do we do with them? Well, clearly this, this verse doesn't teach that we can lose our salvation, but it does show us that there are people among the church body who were never saved. Because Paul says that he is persuaded... Of, the, of people who really are Christians, of things that accompany salvation. Real fruit, real life change. But what does that mean for us today? Does it mean that when we read these passages that we should just skip over them because they make us uncomfortable? I believe God put them there to make us uncomfortable. We are to read these passages because God wants us to examine our lives. There's another position that people hold to, and I've heard, I've heard it taught, and I've seen it in pastoral counseling, and it's very dangerous. Of the two main positions, the one I hold to, that God would bring a living faith and save someone, change their life, and secure that faith all the way to heaven. And then there's those who would believe that, of course, God would secure that faith and someone would trust Christ as Savior, but then they might lose their salvation because of a choice. There's a third option that I've heard presented that I feel is far more dangerous than the position that someone could lose their salvation. And that is someone who would teach that because you said a, a sinner's prayer at the age of five, but have been living in rebellion against God your entire life, that you should feel secure in your salvation. That's not something to feel secure about. Because that's not what the grace of God produces. And so many times we'll take people to 1 John 5 and it says, well, see here, you said the sinner's prayer and, you know, you know, John, he wrote these things to you so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have, you know, everlasting life. And see, just, just by believing in the name of the Son of God, you, you can have strong confidence that you have eternal life. But we have to take the context of that passage into consideration. What was John saying in 1 John? What were the things that he wrote? Again, this is where I encourage you to read the book of 1 John. The confidence we have is because we have a changed life. The confidence we have is not that our life is perfect, but that we can look back and we can see that the grace of God has actually been effectual in my life. I can see that I have new desires. And it's not that I, I don't necessarily stop sinning and become perfect at the point of salvation, but that my life is now marked by a life of repentance because there is now a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And I do have new desires now to live for the Lord. And yes, sometimes I will fail, but the spirit of God is actively working in my life trying to make me like his son, or like the son of God. I would encourage you to read those passages to we, so we can examine our lives on a regular basis. I would encourage you in the sense of ministry, if someone comes to you, because this isn't just for pastors, someone's going to come to you and they might have had a profession of faith, but their entire life has been marked with sin. 
There's been no change of direction. That is not what the grace of God produces. One of the most dangerous things you can tell them is, hey, don't worry. I know I, I, I was there. You, you said the sinner's prayer, but your life never changed. But don't worry, you're secure. Look, I don't know the person's heart, and I know the sanctification process can be a little bit different for everybody, but instead of jumping there first, I would actually go to these warning passages and say, hey, examine your life. This is what the grace of God produces in someone's life. Is this what you see in your life? Again, not perfection, but do you actually see the Spirit of God working in your life? If you don't, you're not one of His. So we can see a couple things here. We understand that the, the grace of God, true biblical faith, produces a living faith. That those who are apostates were never truly saved. And I want you to have an understanding of these truths because now whenever you get to these passages that some might consider to be difficult passages, they're not difficult. Sometimes they're difficult to read because they make us uncomfortable. But they're not inconsistent with the understanding that God secures our salvation. Now, are there other things in the, in the Bible that make it clear that we have eternal security as opposed to me just explaining away some of these harder verses? Yes. Yeah, we're actually going to cover some of those. I would say that we can feel secure because we have a perfect atonement. This word atonement is very similar to the idea of a propitiation. It's an atonement. It's a, it's a payment that is made that is there to satisfy wrath. In particular, the wrath of God. And I think to have a better appreciation of the atonement and understand of what, it, of what is being satisfied, we need to have a better picture of who God is and what sin is. Sometimes we make the comments and we think that, well, how could God send someone to, to hell forever just because of little sins? But the reason that we call sins little is because we live where sin is. In fact, sin is a part of our lives. And so we're, we're so close to it, we don't see those distinctions. Now, how many of you have ever been to Clinton, Iowa? Okay, is there something that might have been noticeable to you about Clinton, Iowa? Yeah, it stinks. <laughs> so when I say Clinton stinks, some people are like, oh, it can't be that bad. No, no I mean, literally, it stinks. It smells bad. It smells horrible because we had the dog food plant. We had the ethanol plant. And just like in Ghostbusters, they said, you know, don't cross streams. Those streams get crossed. And the smell is absolutely atrocious. But after you've lived there for, you know, 10 years or so, it's not that the smell goes away, but you get, you get kind of used to it, right? So, well, I, would, I went to college, went down to Tennessee, and I experienced, you know, fresh air continually for a while, something I hadn't experienced in a long time. You're gone for three or four months, and you get within a 10-mile radius of Clinton, and it just hits you. And then you start to understand, finally, why the storms go around Clinton. There's some kind of chemical barrier in the air, and it keeps the clouds away because it's absolutely atrocious. You see, the greater the contrast of something, the more obviously it just means the more noticeable it is. So I want you to understand who God is. God is holy. When we think about holiness, we think holiness just means, oh yeah, it's talking about his purity. While it is talking about his purity, the holiness of God is not just only talking about his purity. It's talking about how he's truly ascended. He's far, far above us. He is infinitely perfect. He is perfect love. He is perfect righteousness. While we have an idea of what some of these things are because we are made in his image, 
even the small concepts that we have, he understands it in a perfect way and in a way that is infinitely above our heads. So yes, I can look at his sin and think, okay, yeah, that lie was wrong, but it doesn't really impact me that much. Now imagine the God who is infinitely above me. That little offense that I feel, multiply it by the infinite. It's no longer a small little sin. And it is now that perfect justice of God that we have to deal with. And that perfect justice means an eternal, perfect wrath. That's why we talk about, well, how could a, such a small sin send someone to hell for eternity? Because it's not small. God is infinitely above who we are. And when he sees that sin, his perfect justice demands perfect wrath. But what did God do? He didn't just leave us there. He sent God the Son, who was perfectly good. He was also holy, infinite above us, and absolutely every way. When we talk about the importance of justification by faith, when we think about how high God is above us, we can't even begin to work for our salvation. There is nothing we could do to contribute to the justification that we needed from a holy, all-powerful, infinite God. But God made provision by sending the perfect, holy, infinite God the Son. And the perfect, infinite wrath of God was poured out and satisfied by the infinite, perfectly good Son of God. And we see verses that discuss the idea of this atonement. 1 John 4, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant satisfy many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Take a close look at verse number 11 again. Talking about God, the Father, looking at God, the Son. And he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Jesus Christ, like, he died in time and space, right? There was a particular time he died and in a certain spot. So what sins did he pay for? I have to ask this question because the idea that someone could lose their salvation after the wrath of God has been satisfied, it's absurd. It's almost like saying that God emptied his wrath out upon the Son for your sins, but he kept just a little bit of wrath in his back pocket. It's like, well, here's the thing. Even though I know all things and I know what you're going to do, I'm going to keep this a little bit of wrath because I know you're going to disappoint me and I'm going to throw it at you. Is that what happens? No. What sins did Jesus Christ die for? Everything past, everything present, everything future. We have security in our salvation because as a believer, when God looks at you, he sees the travail of God the Son, and he is satisfied. There's no more sins to be paid for we can't lose it because he's the one that purchased it for us. 
But I want you to think about this in, even on, on a day-to-day practical aspect. How many times we let the guilt of past mistakes or even current mistakes get us down. We think God is somehow looking in heaven and we think, oh, God's so disappointed with us. Well, disappointment would have the idea that God didn't know what we were going to be. And that's, well, he knows everything. He already paid for it. He's not up there and God's not thinking, okay, well, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so upset with you. And I, I you know, I, I, I kind of love you, but I really don't like you. And we think this is who God is when we're dealing with him. As his child, God does not see our sin. The sin has already been paid for. It's been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He sees the travail of the soul of the Son of God, and he is satisfied. Your life has been covered by the blood of Christ. Everything you've done in the past, everything you're doing now, and everything you're doing in the future. And again, this is where salvation, the true biblical salvation is so perfect that it doesn't mean that we now go ahead and live however we want to because true salvation also produces true biblical fruit of salvation by the grace of God. We get a new life and all of our sins from the past, present, and future have been paid for. We're also secure because the work that God completed or started will be completed. Philippians 1, 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jude 1, 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and exceeding joy. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 8 says, So that ye came behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 21-23. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, and I love this next part, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and of which he was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And some might be wondering, why would you include that verse? Because it says, if you continue in the faith. Some people will use the sea. Well, if you don't continue, it means you're going to lose your salvation. Well, the Greek mood that's used for that word if means that if isn't so iffy. It has the idea of Paul is almost, it's almost like it's rhetorical. Paul's, he's already fully persuaded they will. He knows what biblical salvation produces. And he says, before God, you were unblameable and unreprovable. And it, it kind of reminds me of what you see at the very end of that troubled passage in Hebrews chapter 6, where it's finished off by saying, but I'm persuaded better things of you. Things that accompany salvation. So Paul's now thinking in his mind, well, you know, you guys are good. You're covered. If, 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 you know, if there, there's this contingency there, it's actually really not that iffy. God's, through the Holy Spirit, through Paul saying, he's, he's already settled on the matter. He knows where they're going. I, I think that the mistake sometimes we make with salvation is we only think salvation as the point of our justification. When our sins have been forgiven. But salvation is actually much more comprehensive than that. Yeah, think of it about this way. If you're friends with my wife on Facebook, you know she's a photographer because she blows up Facebook with pictures. And it's, it's more for marketing, not so much your viewing pleasure. But she gets it out there. But when people try to get pictures taken with her, there's some processes that have to take place. They book the appointment. They sign a contract. They make a payment. She takes the pictures. 
she edits the pictures, and she delivers the pictures. Now, we might think of salvation as that point where, okay, we made the payment. Okay, well, in this case, Jesus made the payment. And so, we'll leave it there. Like, this is what salvation is. It's only a part of it. Salvation goes much further beyond that because my wife's job's not done until the pictures are delivered and Jesus' job and salvation, God's job and salvation, what he says he's going to do, wasn't just accomplished at the point that your sins were forgiven. It actually goes far beyond that. Now, maybe a better way of thinking of salvation is the idea of restoration. Remember, the earth was created in a perfect environment, and we were created in the image of God ourselves. We were actually his representatives to the earth, and that because of sin, the earth was cursed. The image of God was marred, but God made provision, yes, for redemption, but ultimately for restoration. And God's purpose in your life was not just to save you from the penalty of your sin, but to save you from the presence of sin itself. God is restoring the image of God that was marred because of sin. If you're a true believer, you're being made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Salvation was not just the point in your life where you turn to Christ. That's just part of the process. There's a whole picture that is involved, which is why I love that first verse in Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God started the work. You've trusted him. Your sins have been paid for all past, present, and future. You have been forgiven, and now he's starting the process of changing your life back to the image of God, restoring what you have marred, what we have marred, because of sin. So we see that we are secure because of a perfect atonement. We are secure because the work of God is not yet completed, but he promises that it will be completed. And we also see that we are kept by the Son, in John 6, starting verse 37, it says, All that the Father hath given me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that of every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up again at the last day. This is a very simple argument. Jesus came to do the will of God the Father. And Jesus says that all that come to him, he's not going to reject anybody. And it's the will of God the Father that all that come to him, that not anyone would be lost. He will raise them up at the last day. So can, let me just, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but can Jesus who is God in the flesh, the God who cannot lie, who does have all power, could he fail to do the will of God the Father? Absolutely not. And what is that will again? That all who come to him, that they won't be rejected, and that he won't lose anybody, and that they will be raised up again at the last day. We have a perfect atonement. All of your past sins, present sins and future sins have been covered by Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, his holy, perfect, infinite justice, and that wrath that came from that justice being poured out upon the holy, perfect, good Son of God to cover all of your sins. 
We have a work that God has started in your life that he will bring to completion. And we have a promise that God the Son will fulfill the will of God the Father that no one that comes to him could possibly be lost, but they will be raised again at the last day. So in conclusion, we see that the grace of God that brings salvation does not produce carnal and lawless living. We might read verses that indicate that people have lost their salvation, but that's not actually what those verses are saying. It's saying these people were never truly saved. Did the triune God make a mistake during the atonement and miss some of our sins? Like, oh, I forgot about those. Or actually, I held back a little bit of my wrath so I could throw it at you later. No. That's not what happened. He saw the travail of God the Son, and he was satisfied. Do we have clear promises in the Bible that God will complete the work he started? Yes. We have multiple. And can God the Son fail to do the will of God the Father? Absolutely not at all points, that we are secure in our salvation. And if you're here today and you are not a believer, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, God commands you to repent, to turn from your sin. If you'll truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross to produce that perfect atonement, you will put your faith solely in that he rose again the third day, you'll get a living faith. God will begin to change your life. He will not only give you a secure salvation, he will give you a salvation that is an active one. He will help you to get victory over the sins that are in your life so you no longer have to be bound to your sin, but that you can live for him. Maybe you're here today and you've you got to be honest to say, like, I've, I've had that profession of faith, but uh, my life doesn't really show it. Those passages but that I called warning passages we find in Hebrews aren't passages to be ignored. They're ones to be read. We need to examine ourselves. Are we truly in the faith? And honestly, throughout our lives, examine ourselves. Not that our life will be perfect, but can we look back from the point we say that we've honestly put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and do we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Do we see God changing us and when we rebel, do we see God chastening us? Because God's not satisfied to leave his children as they are. He wants to make them more like him. Perhaps you're here today and you're being, be being beaten up by guilt. Can I tell you, tell you that, yes, we're still going to make mistakes? We will. Sometimes some bad ones. But when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. He sees his son. Because his perfect wrath was exhausted on his perfect son. We don't have to live with our guilt any longer. Our sins have been covered. We can feel secure in our salvation.